You're listening to the Veritas Podcast. Veritas is the college ministry of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. We're helping move the hearts and minds of more college students to believe that Jesus is more. To get connected, find us on social media at Veritas Como. We hope you're encouraged by this message. So let's start our time with a thought experiment, okay? So here we go. This is a resume that you see on uh, LinkedIn. You see the resume. You don't see the name of the person it belongs to. So here are the qualifications. Here's the offices they've held. Here is why you might want to hire them. Uh, They are the Lord. That's the title that they've earned. Son of God, divine ruler, savior of the world, bringer of peace. Who does that resume belong to? And we're in a church building, right? And uh, we are uh, a part of a Christian group tonight. So maybe it seems obvious to you the answer. The answer, of course, is Jesus. That's who this resume belongs to. Well, if you lived in the first century, you would agree. It is a very easy answer. This resume obviously belongs to Caesar. No one would have thought it belonged to Jesus. Everyone in the first century would have said, that is obviously Caesar's resume because Caesar held all these titles before Jesus ever did. When Jesus came and he accepted these titles, what he was sending a message is that he was the true king. Jesus was the king, not Caesar. Now, if Jesus was the king and Caesar wasn't, well, if you went around saying that, that could put you on the sharp edge of a guillotine. Because to say that this, these titles belonged to Caesar was to say that there was a new king in the empire, and Roman Caesars didn't take kindly to their rivals. Speaking of death, why do you think they killed Jesus? Do you think they killed Jesus and hung him on a cross because he went around and said, love each other? Do you think they killed Jesus because he went around and and preached the golden rule? Of course not. Rome crucified Jesus because he dared say that he was the true king. They killed Jesus because he made himself to be a rival to Caesar. Jesus' claim was revolutionary. Is there anything revolutionary about your faith? If not, what do you think happened? I hope you're familiar with the satirical website, the Babylon Bee. If you're not, you should become familiar with it. It's run by super smart people. I don't know who they are, but I wish I was as smart as them. And, and they do kind of satire on, on all kinds of cultural issues, but mainly on Christians. And, and so they, they ran a headline not too long ago that uh, said this. It said, Bible lacking sinner's prayer returned for a full refund. Now, maybe you're not familiar with the term sinner's prayer. That is the name of the kind of prayer that's been passed down through the centuries where a person would confess their sin and ask Jesus into their heart to pay for their sin and to take them up 
to heaven. And this is kind of a satirical headline making fun of that, saying that some person came and returned their Bible because it didn't have one of these prayers in it. The article underneath this headline from this imaginary woman said this, I I searched that Bible through and through and couldn't find anything about a magic prayer I could lead people to say in order to instantly get them into the kingdom and have them forevermore secure in their eternal salvation no matter what their life looks like afterwards. So she couldn't find that prayer in the Bible, so she returned it because she thought the Bible was defective. But of course, the reason she couldn't find a prayer like that in the Bible is because there isn't one. There isn't a prayer like that, and yet there are a lot of people who think there is. There are a lot of people who assume there is. There are a lot of people who uh, search the Bible looking for just that prayer. In his series uh, at Veritas on Tuesday nights in which we're saying, what are the questions that Jesus asked and what can we learn from the questions that he asks us? Now, I think a lot of people have a misconception about Jesus. They think of him as the answer man. Like people went up to him and asked him questions and he gave out a lot of answers. It is true that he was asked a lot of questions, but it is not true that he gave out many answers. Jesus didn't answer most of the questions he was asked. He asked other people far more questions than he actually answered. Jesus asked questions not to gain information as if it was something that he didn't know or couldn't figure out or needed their input or advice. But Jesus asked people questions because he was trying to teach them something. But instead of just telling them what he wanted them to know, he asked them a question so that they could reflect upon their own life. It was his way of, maybe you might think of as the Socratic method. Get them to reflect and learn by asking them questions. So here's the question that we're going to look at tonight. It comes from the Gospel of Luke. Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? How would you answer that question? Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? What do you think that Jesus is trying to get at with this question? What does he want them to reflect on? Well, it seems pretty obvious that he wanted them to examine their own life and decide, do they really believe that he is Lord? Because Jesus is drawing a connection between what we call him and the way we live. He is saying that if we call him Lord and do not actually obey him, maybe we really don't believe he's Lord. Now, these are conversations that we're uncomfortable with because we don't want to be considered judgmental. We don't feel the confidence to be able to look at someone and say, why do you call Jesus Lord but don't obey him? And probably we are right to be humble because we don't know people's heart and we are the least uh, likely to, or the, the least qualified to judge another person. But when Jesus looks at us, When Jesus looks at you and says, why do you call me Lord if you don't do what I say? It cuts right to our heart. It exposes us in our own mind. It points out the inconsistency between what we say and what we do. They called him Lord, but they didn't obey him. 
and Jesus wasn't putting up with it. It's not the only place that the New Testament has this kind of question. It's not the only place that it makes this kind of point. In Titus 1, the Apostle Paul says, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. So they claim that they know God. They call Jesus Lord, but by their life, they deny that he is Lord. See, what Paul is saying is simply what Jesus said. You might be able to fool yourself into thinking that Jesus is Lord, that you believe that, but you won't fool God. How did we get to the point, how did we, I mean you and me, but I mean also just the larger American church. How did we get to a point where it's okay to call Jesus Lord, but we're super duper okay with not doing what he said? How do we get to a point where we could say, I believe in Jesus, and yet we're just totally fine ignoring what Jesus says? Now, this is one of those topics where you got to be really clear. And unfortunately, my guess is some might misunderstand what Jesus is getting after here. So let's try to be as clear as we can. Our relationship with God is completely by his grace. All of us, you, me, all of us, are inconsistent in our faith. Everybody who, called Jesus is, who calls Jesus Lord have areas of their life where they disobey Jesus. None of us are consistent between our words and our actions. 1 Timothy 1.15, the Apostle Paul, long after he'd been a Christian, when he was writing to churches, leading churches, planting churches, said, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Who's the worst sinner that you know? The answer to that question should always be me. I'm the worst sinner that I know. So this is not about, about trying to earn our salvation. It, it's, following Jesus is not about trying to, to, to earn your way with God. But there's a big difference between saying, I see my sin and I want to confess it and be honest with God about it. And saying, I see my sin, and you know what? I don't care. You know what? I'm comfortable continuing in it. I see my sin, but God will forgive me, so I don't need to deal with it. Or maybe not even seeing it at all. I just read some really reliable data from a a really reliable sociologist that 27% of people in America claiming to be evangelicals don't even go to church. They don't even go to church. So somehow we've got an an environment where it makes sense to people to claim Christ but not care that you don't follow him. 
I wonder if somewhere along the way we've distorted what it means to be a Christian. I wonder if somewhere along the way we've been searching for that magic prayer in the Bible that doesn't really exist. I wonder if maybe we were told that to be a Christian just means, you know, walking the aisle, throwing my stick in the fire, raising my hand, praying a prayer. I wonder if we started believing that and we've told other people that because that's what we were told. So imagine this. Imagine that you're told that here's what it means to be a Christian. You're a sinner. You're going to go to hell. Unless you ask Jesus to be your Savior, then you're going to go to heaven. So what do you want to do? <laughs> well, heaven's really hot. So I'd rather go, or hell's really hot. I'd rather go to, got it mixed up there, air conditioning in heaven, not in hell. I, I, I'd rather go to heaven than hell. So sure, I'll, yeah, okay, so I pray this prayer. That's what it, great, count me in. And then like the next week they come back and they start going, okay, yeah, now here's the deal. As a Christian, you, you want to get involved in a community, you want to confess your sins, you want to start bringing every area of your life under Jesus' lordship. You're like, whoa, 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 hang on a second. This isn't what you sold me. This is like a bait and switch. Like you dangled heaven in front of me and I bought it and now you're telling me it comes along with all this other stuff? You didn't tell me any of that. What's going on? It's like that scene from the old uh, Monty Python movie, The Search for the Holy Grail. In, in that m movie, there is a scene where the, the King Arthur's knights, they've been on this quest to get to the castle, and they finally get to it, but it's separated by this huge abyss. And across the abyss is a, a very rickety bridge, and there's this old bridge keeper. And, and he tells them, you've got to be able to answer some questions right. And if you can answer the questions right, you get to go across the bridge to get to the castle. And if you don't, you fall down into the abyss and, of course, die. And it's like we've bought into this as a view of what it means to be a Christian. Like we want to go across the bridge to heaven uh, so we want to be able to answer the question right. We don't want to fall into the abyss of hell. So if we just get the answer to the questions right, we get to go across. Is that what it means to be a Christian? Is that how you become a Christian? Are we looking for a magic prayer, a magic answer that's not in the Bible? How did Jesus talk? What kind of things did he say? Let's go back to him. Here's what he says in Matthew 9. As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Jesus never told anybody to pray a prayer. Jesus never told anybody to pray to receive him. Jesus never told anybody to ask him into their heart. But what he said over and over and over is, follow me. Follow me. See, it's like we've taught this version of Christianity that is the minimum entrance requirement to get into heaven. Like, what's the least you have to believe? How little can you believe and still get in? 
But when you ask that question, what you end up doing, intentionally or not, it doesn't really matter. What you end up doing is making uh, the rest of the Bible optional. Yeah? It's kind of optional. If you want to do it, great. If not, no big deal. I mean, can you imagine uh, sitting there talking to Jesus and, and Jesus saying to you, hey, look, you don't really have to worry about actually obeying me or doing any of this stuff. As long as you ask me into your heart to pay for your sins, you're golden. Can, can you imagine Jesus uh, 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 saying that to you? Or maybe can you imagine uh, uh, saying to Jesus, hey, look, Jesus, I trust you with my eternal life but not my everyday life. It doesn't quite make sense, does it? Now, learning to follow Jesus, learning to obey Jesus, that's not earning your way to heaven. Obeying Jesus is just what it looks like to follow him. It's just what it looks like to obey his command, to follow me. See, when Jesus said, follow me, when he invited people to follow him, what he did is he undermined. He undermined that minimum entrance requirement kind of approach to the Bible. He undermined that approach to Christianity. Because that approach always says, hey, what's the minimum I can do? The minimum I can believe. Can you imagine saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus, I, I really don't want to do what you taught. I'm really not all that interested in your approach to life, but I would like to use your blood to get into heaven. I would love to do that. See, here, it's not as if we can say to Jesus, I trust you with my everyday life, but not, or I trust you with my eternal life, but not my everyday life. Jesus wants to be the Lord of your everyday life. We either trust him with our whole life, or we don't. On my wedding day, some 31 years ago, when I got married to Christine, one of the ugliest weddings ever. I mean, look at that pink background. It, it is horrific. Um, uh, imagine if I had said to her, hey, what's the minimum I can do and still be married to you? Like, what's the least amount of commitment you would take from me and this would still be okay to get married? My guess is that it wouldn't have been a very long ceremony, right? See, a marriage requires fidelity. It requires saying no to sexual relationships with other people. It requires vulnerability, learning to be a servant, and in my case, learning to pretend like I like country music, right? Now, are there minimum requirements to be married? Yeah, there probably are. We could probably come up with some. But if you really want the marriage, the minimum requirements, they take care of themselves. And if you really don't want the marriage, then the minimum requirements aren't going to help. You know what never defines the word Christian? The Bible. The Bible never calls anybody to become a Christian. Jesus never uses the word Christian. But you know what he says over and over and over? 
You know what the New Testament uses over and over and over? It's a word called disciple. Jesus doesn't use the word Christian, but he does talk about those who are disciples. Let me show you. Like, for example, here in the book of Acts, it says the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So what did they call themselves? They called themselves disciples. Other people ended up calling them Christians. The word Christian is used three times in the New Testament. The word disciple is used over 300 times. Now, are disciples different than Christians? Like, are disciples the Navy SEALs of Christianity? Are disciples like overachievers? Are, are disciples like, you know, uh, to be a disciple, is that optional, like leather seats and a sunroof? No. To be a disciple is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. Here, we're back in the book of Acts. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Wherever the word of God went, more and more people started becoming disciples of Jesus. See, it's easy to hide behind the word Christian. It's easy to hide behind that word. Because we can call ourselves whatever we want. And if you call yourself a Christian, I mean, who am I to, to judge you and say you are or you aren't? But two different people can use the same word, Christian, and mean completely different things. But the word disciple, it has a more specific meaning. It's harder to misunderstand. A disciple is a follower. A disciple is a learner. Look how Jesus talks in Luke chapter 6. The student is not above his teacher. But everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. See, a disciple becomes more and more like the one they are following. So disciples of Jesus should be coming more and more like Jesus. Disciples of cable news probably get angrier, right? Disciples of Amazon uh, probably get more discontent. Disciples of fitness probably get vainer. Disciples of TikTok get, what, dumber? I don't know. But, but, but maybe you want to ask yourself a question. Am I becoming more like Jesus? Let's just say over the course of the last three months or six months or a year, has anybody around me seen that, that I've become more like Jesus? As I sit before God and ask him to show me my life and examine my own life, am I becoming more like Jesus? If I'm not, that might be because I'm not a disciple of Jesus. So what should we do? Should we abandon the word Christian? Probably not. Probably not, but what we probably should do is try to understand the word Christian. Where does it come from? Well, clearly it comes from Christ, Jesus Christ. Uh, some people think that that is kind of like Jesus' last name, right? He was born to Mary and Joseph Christ, and his name is Jesus Christ. But it's not. 
Some people think the term means savior. I think a lot of people probably think that. Jesus is our savior. That's not what it means either. Christ was his title. It's like the title uh, Mr. President. Christ was the office that he held. He was God's anointed king. That's what Christ means. And so every time you see Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ or Christ Jesus in your Bible, you could very accurately translate that in your head to be King Jesus. Jesus the King. And if Jesus is the King because he is called the Christ, then what are Christians? The subjects of the king, king's men and the king's women, the king's subjects. Jesus is the saving king who died for us and now rules over us for our good. Jesus is both our savior and our Lord. But you cannot separate those and choose one and not the other. They are a package deal. It's both or neither. The Savior, as Savior, he, he forgives our sins. As Lord, he reorients and reshapes our life. So what, what you don't see in the Bible is people praying a prayer to ask Jesus to be their Savior. But what you do see in the Bible is people surrendering their life and giving their allegiance to King Jesus. So you can't say, hey, you know what, the weekend is me time. I'm going to do what I want on the weekend, whatever that might mean for you. If you say that, that just shows that Jesus isn't your king. You can't say, well, I haven't really been listening to Jesus this semester. Because what you're really showing is that you're following some other king. When you call Jesus your king, when you call him Lord, then you don't own your life. You don't get to do whatever you want. Someone else rules your life. One of the things that, that uh, you see throughout history is that most countries, even some countries today, are ruled by monarchs, kings and queens. And, and when you go back and look through history at uh, their reigns, you notice that they, they all have kind of a throne. This is Charlemagne. I'm sure you know more about him than I do, the leader of the Holy Roman Empire. This is the uh, throne of King Tut in uh, Egypt. And you see there are really different kinds of thrones. This is Napoleon's throne. This is Ivan the Terrible's throne, the Russian leader. Now, what you notice is that all those thrones are really different. Different styles, different eras, different materials. They're all different in so many ways. But they are the same in one way. They are the same in maybe the most important way. And that is all those thrones are one-seaters. There's no two seats on a throne. Your life has a throne. 
It is your heart. It is where your whole life is lived from. And it doesn't come with two seats. It comes with one. And either you will be on that throne or Jesus will be on that throne. Either Jesus will be on that throne or you'll put something else on that throne. Who is on the throne of your heart? Who's on the throne of your heart? And Jesus says, why do you call me Lord if you don't do what I say? Why do you call me Lord if you put someone else on the throne of your life? Would you bow your head and pray with me? And, and, and while you do, I invite the music team to come back up and lead us. But what we're going to do is we're going to just take a moment here, if you'll let me have just a moment with you, and, and just talk between you and God. And my guess is that, that there's something that God has put his finger on in your life that you're not surrendering to him, that you're trying to keep for yourself. There's at least part of your heart that you're trying to sit on that throne. And, and I just want you to be honest with yourself for just a second because nobody else knows. It's just you and God. Do you want him to be king or not? And I guess the right way to say it, at least based on what Luke 6 says, is do you want to obey Jesus or not? Because that's the real question. So... Maybe for you it's your tongue and how you talk, or maybe it is your future, or maybe it's your money or your sexuality. I don't know what it is for you. I just want to know if you want Jesus to be king of that part of your life, or if you think you're better off running it. Just tell him. Will you tell him what you really want? Jesus, we are wrestling with who we want to make king of our life. And I pray for my heart, I pray for everybody here, that you would help us know ourselves. So we just be honest with ourselves and with you. But more than that, Jesus, I pray that as we make this decision, a decision we make every day, about who's going to be king. I pray that we would see you as you really are. In your beauty and your glory and your truth and your majesty. That you are the one who gives us life, sustains us. You are the one who is good and merciful and kind. So we might see that our heart really wants you to sit on that throne. Oh, Jesus, would you take the throne of our life? May we surrender everything to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Veritas podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, make sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find our content so that they can be encouraged too. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow us on social media at Veritas Como. Thanks again for listening.